The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, I'm Eric Savitz, Associate Editor for Technology at Barron's. Welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I am uh, very excited today to have with me Malcolm Harris, who is the author of an epic uh, new book uh, called Palo Alto, A History of Cap- uh, California Capitalism and the World. Uh, Malcolm, thank you for uh, for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. So, you know, I, I have to mention that, uh, you know, you start early in the book, you tell uh, the, the, the book is a sweeping epic, a sweeping story of the history of Silicon Valley and Palo Alto and Stanford University and the role they play in the world. It does start a little bit when you are in fourth grade um, at Ohlone Elementary School, which I would point out is literally around the corner from where I'm sitting now. So it feels like the appropriate place to be having uh, having this conversation. I, I think what would be helpful uh, as a start for the people who have not read the book or don't know much about the book, for you to give sort of a high level um, sort of uh, description of what it is that you set out to do and um, and and the way you approach this uh, pretty uh, daunting topic. Yeah. So the way I originally set out to do it and the way I ended up doing it are actually pretty different because to sell a book and to write a book are, are two different activities. Okay. Uh, and so maybe the Barons and listeners are interested in the selling part. Sure. Uh, so uh, I sold the book as much more memoir like than it ended up being. So I sold it as like very Joan Didion, obviously, is a great reference point, uh, even like W.G. Zabald, uh, where I was going to do half of like my childhood growing up in Palo Alto, my recollections, significant moments, et cetera, interlaced with the history of this place, the, you know, the whole 160 plus years of Anglo-American colonization of Alta California. And that's for writers in my cohort especially those of us without graduate degrees, uh, that's a good way to access that place in publishing. You know, it's hard to get the cred to write a book about uh, history if you're not a credentialed historian. Mm -hmm. And one way you can do it is by interlacing your personal story. So that was the way I pitched it. And then when I went to write it, uh, I realized three things. First of all, I wasn't very good at that kind of writing. Uh, And the way it lined up against the historical stuff just didn't work even though it does for other people, other people are very good at it. Uh, Two, I didn't like doing it. It wasn't fun for me. It was like kind of agonizing. And then three, I had like six times more history to tell than I originally planned to. So I pitched and sold the book at 80,000 words uh, and then turned in, I think a quarter million to my editor. (laughs) So it was not originally supposed to be this long, but the more I started getting into the history, the more I realized every part of it was three times as long as I thought it was going to be, but that I could still justify it. And so that what the book is on a high level is this history of the age of planetary capitalism told through California and specifically this suburb of Palo Alto. So it's bookended with the class tensions of the 1870s, which is what Palo Alto emerges from as this 
original round of suburbs uh, to the present day or as close as I could get to 2020. And it's funny that so much of Silicon Valley history feels like it's happened now since 2020. Uh, and right. so this only this can only cover uh, the stuff up to when I wrote it, you know? Yeah, and we'll get to some of those uh, those things that have happened uh, post post publication that I think are interesting uh, in a few minutes. So um, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about the role that Stanford has played, not just in the story, uh, but in the the evolution of capitalism, the technology business, because a lot of the story just comes back over and over again. Uh, to to the, the origin story of Stanford, which is fascinating in itself, uh, but then the role that Stanford plays in the global economy over time. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, when you say Stanford, you could be referring to Leland Stanford, the the railroad baron who is was the front man for the what became known as the combine, the railroad combine, as well as a governor and. Uh, U.S. Senator from the, the state of California, one of the founding fathers of the state of California. Um, but you're probably talking about Stanford, Leland Stanford Junior University, which right. is the school that spins off of this uh, suburban escape that he takes his family on in the 1870s. Uh, and people who are from Palo Alto or know Palo Alto are used to the town itself being referred to occasionally as Stanford, California, um, which you'll you'll see in the media sometimes, because the two are so associated. I mean, Stanford obviously is the, the largest landowner, not just in the area, but like the larger region has thousands of acres, which as people know, thousands of acres of Bay Area land are really hard to come by. Uh, <laughs> And that has really been the basis for its prosperity as that land. Uh, we were talking before we started a little bit about the Stanford Industrial Park. And in the post-war era, Stanford is able to build into this archetypical Cold War university by using those lands um, and becoming a, a landlord, basically building up this whole tech sector on Stanford property, really interrelated with the university at all levels um, where you've got Stanford technicians working with the company, the company working with Stanford equipment, paying Stanford to send their people to the university and really generating um, the post-war economy out of this small California suburb. But this is a tendency that I trace all the way back to this establishment in the 19th century uh, by Leland Stanford and the Stanford family and you can trace it all the way through. So we talk about Silicon Valley and think about Silicon Valley as like a 60s forward phenomenon, uh, but Stanford University and the Stanford name and the Stanford family uh, have been nationally and internationally important since the establishment uh, and even since before the establishment of Palo Alto uh, in the mid 19th century. Right. So, you know, it's, it's interesting as, uh, as you know, somebody lived, who uh, grew up in Palo Alto uh, the 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 Stanford family and and other early participants in sort of the Stanford University story, like their names show up all over the town, right? So um, I, I I can't remember if you went to so JLS Jane Lathrop. Center. Yep, I went to JLS. So JLS is a middle school in um, um, in 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 Palo Alto. Um, the the uh, and Stanford. I should point out, of course, that Stanford. Uh, the university is actually named for Leland's son, who mm -hmm. I didn't know until I read the book that he had actually died as a teenager, uh, right, on tra while traveling in Europe. 
yeah, a young teenager had a lot accumulated a lot of the life experience before he dies as a young teenager. But yes, dies as a young teenager, the Stanford's only child. It's a it's a tragic story. And then there's this absurd uh, element of the, the sort of early backstory uh, that the first president um, of of Stanford, David Starr Jordan, who is plays a big part in the early days of the university, which you can talk about a little bit. But uh, but there's also like a kind of a, a murder uh, that takes place that involves Jane Lathrop Stanford. Talk a little bit about that story, which is just amazing uh, for people who don't know it. Yeah. So growing up in Palo Alto, the story about Jane Lathrop Stanford's death, and she's the, the wife of uh, Leland Stanford Sr. and the mother of Leland Stanford Jr. and the founding mother of Stanford University, uh, is that she sort of died of being a crazy old lady and that she <laughs> believed in ghosts and like a lot of like frontier, Western frontier widows uh, lost her mind and went crazy and died. And that was the story, uh, you know, I was born in the late 80s. Uh, and that's the story I grew up with in, in Palo Alto. And more recently, people have uh, questioned whether that story makes a lot of sense, considering she was poisoned with strychnine twice <laughs> and dies only the second time. Uh, Richard White, who's a retired Stanford historian, recently published this book, uh, Who Killed Jane Stanford, mm -hmm. which actually came out after I had finished my manuscript, which was a, a bit of a chaotic moment for me where I had to like frantically read through his book and make sure I hadn't got it wrong. Uh, but we more or less agree, which is that there's a very strong circumstantial case that David Starr Jordan, the first president of Stanford University, was involved in this poisoning plot that now indisputably exists. Okay. Um, and he starts trying to cover up this poisoning before the second poisoning even happens. And he's, you know, he's facing his removal from the university. He and Jane Lathrop Stanford are are really at loggerheads uh, when she mysteriously dies and he takes over the university permanently and really directs Stanford into the 20th century and creates Stanford as a school as we know it. Um, now David Starr Jordan, is, the, the shine is wearing off his reputation. They're taking his name off stuff. So Jordan was the other middle school. It was Jane Lathrop Stanford Middle School and David Starr Jordan Middle School. They took his name off of it not so much because of the true crime story, but because he was a very active and noted eugenicist. Uh, right. This is a guy who was so racist that he was an anti-imperialist because he didn't want the Philippines and he didn't want the Puerto Rico because he didn't want to deal with the people who lived there in America. Um, and he's yeah. a major figure in the story. Right. Well, and and so for a couple of reasons, right? So you mentioned that uh, there was some tension between Obviously, there was tension because there was a murder, but there was tension between between Jordan and um, and Jane um, Jane Stanford, and part of it was over the direction that the university was going to take, which, as you alluded to, really sets the stage for for much of what's what follows. Talk a little bit about what that tension was. Yeah, Jane Stanford was a she was interested in liberal arts. She was interested in philosophy and spiritualism. Um, one of the the things, the elements of the dispute between her and Jordan was over the question of the philosopher William James, mm -hmm. that she wanted to pay William James a bunch of money to come over from Harvard for a year to spend a year at Stanford. Uh, and David Starr Jordan wanted to take that money and give it to his eugenicist buddies instead, like quite straight up wanted to just pay his eugenicist friends more money uh, instead of William, bringing William James over. Um, 
she actually wins that fight. William James does show up, but by the time he shows up, she has been murdered uh, and no one actually wants him there. <laughs> and then what happens in 1906 is there's a huge earthquake in the Bay Area. Right. And so part of Jane Stanford's project was not just building the university as this liberal arts place, but also building the largest museum in the United States, mm. which she built. You know, this was going to be the West Coast Met in Palo Alto. And this again, this museum was built. It existed. Uh, and it's totally destroyed in the 1906 earthquake. Mm. And part of the story, the pro-Jordan story that gets told sort of by implication is that this is a, a sort of divine approval of the David Starr Jordan plan for Stanford and a like wiping off the monumental architecture, memorial architecture that Jane Stanford uh, built. And that sort of gives this final approval to the David Starr Jordan plan, which is all about the sort of STEM, what we can now understand as a STEM university, right? Which at the time was pseudoscience, it was eugenics is a pseudoscience, but for them it was the highest science. Well, and as you point out in the book, like it was the early ambition of the Stanfords to build kind of the Harvard of the West, which at the time seemed uh, like an insanely ambitious goal for a little, you know, startup university, basically in a podunk little, you know, town suburb of San Francisco, basically. Right. I mean, it was it was beyond audacious. Yeah. I mean, we can sort of compare it to like Elon Musk trying to start a university in New Mexico right now, right? And they had the same thing where they went to all the the presidents of the Ivy League and said, you know, we'll triple your salary if you come to California and work for us. And if Elon Musk went to the president of Harvard and said, I'll triple your salary to come work at Musk U, you'd tell him to buzz off, right? And like, you'd probably get a lot of buzz offs, yeah. which is what the Stanford got until they get to the president of Indiana University, uh, who's David Starr Jordan who is like, all right, let's go. And he had a real opportunity to set up this school in his own image and in the image of his own thought, uh, which is he ends up doing. And he teaches this subject there called bionomics that he sort of invents with some of his colleagues from Indiana University. And he's, a, he's an ichthyologist, he studies fish. Uh, but they craft this new idea, bionomics, which if you read it now, looks exactly like evolutionary psychology. It looks exact because their whole principle was we can use eugenics and the principles of eugenics, not just to explain biology and evolution, but everything. We can explain society that way. We can explain economics that way. Everything is just the playing out of what they understood as natural hierarchy. And that set of beliefs, you know, nobody studies bionomics anymore, but that set of principles definitely still underlies so much of Silicon Valley thinking. And like, if you had a bionomics, if you introduce bionomics 101 at Stanford next year, I bet you could get a lot of people to take it, right? <laughs> yeah. So I want to touch on, there's a, there's a concept that you talk about throughout the book, uh, which goes back uh, again to, to Leland Stanford. Uh, you call the Palo Alto system, right? And the Palo Alto system actually starts, um, oddly enough, uh, with raising horses. Um, and talk a little bit about the Palo Alto system, where it came from and how it applies over time, because it, it really is a, it's a primary theme that runs throughout the book. 
Yeah, and it is one a metaphor. I want to be clear. If you you know, no one in Palo Alto knows what the Palo Alto system is. And if you you know go around asking people in Palo Sand Hill Road, you know, what's the Palo Alto system? Right. I think they would probably make something up because they don't like admitting that they don't know things. But uh, they don't know what that means. But then if you ask them about the principles that underlie what I will describe as the Palo Alto system, uh, they would be like, oh yeah, the Palo Alto system. Uh, so still at Stanford, it's got the school's got this nickname, they call it the farm. Um, and most people don't quite know what it's a, what it was a farm for, but what it was originally and what Palo Alto was for originally was the largest trotting horse stock farm in the world which Leland Stanford founds when he takes his family to run away from the class tensions in San Francisco in the 1870s to the suburbs. He has to invent a suburb to go run away to because the suburbs don't exist yet. He named uh, Palo Alto, by the way. Yeah, which he names at Palo Alto. Um, he doesn't want to join with Mayfield, which is the other town that exists because they won't pass a, a dry ordinance, um, which he has reinvented himself as a teetotaler at this point, even though he'd been formerly like a famed drinker. Uh, anyway, he has this real interest in horses. In fact, his interest in horses probably is the, uh, he's more interested in horses than he is in basically anything, including the railroads, right? Um, the guy, Leland Stanford himself is a bit of a goofball, not the, the, not the sharpest tool in the shed, which is sort of how he ends up being the front man for the railroad is that the other railroad guys say, let's stick Leland in front. And then if anyone gets in trouble, it'll be him. Right. Um, and he mostly gets away with it. Uh, so he has the stock farm for trotting horses in Palo Alto, and he and his head trainer, Lee, um, Charles Marvin, decide they're going to revolutionize the production of horses. And horses at this point in the United States are the highest level of technology, right? They haven't been supplanted by engines yet, right. which means that transportation runs on horses, the canals run on horses, the streetcars run on horses agricultural machinery is dragged by horses, military machinery is dragged by horses. Horses are the engines of the world. And Leland Stanford says in, you know, classic tech bro fashion, there are 13 million horses in this country. If I can increase the value of each one of those horses by a hundred bucks, that's $1.3 billion I can add to the economy, which is now 30 plus billion adjusted for inflation. Um, but this is like standard tech bro theorizing. And the way that he and Charles Marvin are going to do this, are going to improve horses, which again, millennia old technology, horses dragging stuff, but they're going to reinvent it because they're capitalists and they're scientists. And the way they're going to do that is they draw inspiration from what's going on in Germany and specifically the early childhood education movement in Germany, because mm -hmm. Germany has recently invented something called a kindergarten. And there's no kindergarten in America for children west of the Rockies but Leland Stanford builds a kindergarten track for horses and they call it kindergarten explicitly drawing on Germany, um, which is building German nationalism at the time, right? Building the first Reich. Um, and they create this system where they run, they're going to run horses as fast as they can, as young as they can hmm. in the face of horse raising wisdom, which holds that you wait, to build the horse up to its speed. You don't run young horses as fast as you can because you're going to spoil good material. They're going to snap a ligament and then your horse is dead and you can't make anything out of them. Right. 
But at the scale that they were operating, they were able to sacrifice that material and still make money. And they were able to do this successfully. And so they shortened the production cycle for horses and horse sperm, which is ultimately their product. Mm -hmm. um, and they raised the fastest, youngest horses in the world very, very quickly with this system called the Palo Alto system. And so they're developing and really accessing or stumbling onto these intangibles of like speed, scale, disruption, uh, youth, potential. These are things that are going to be crucial. It's even again, still to Palo Alto to this day. If you look at it like open move, AI. Move, move fast and break things. Exactly. Literally move fast and break horses, right? Race yeah. horses fast, yeah. break some. That's okay. That's how it works as long as you scale. Um, right. And that Which, was the plan. Yeah, very familiar uh, to anybody who pays paying any attention to Silicon Valley. I note, by the way, um, Leland Stanford is actually in the Harness Racing Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is fascinating. And it is true that uh, one of the most, and we'll stop talking about horses in a second, but one <laughs> of the most famous uh, harness racing horses of all time is a horse called Lectioneer, which mm -hmm. uh, was one of uh, Leland Stanford's horses. There's actually a street named after Electioneer on the Stanford campus, which I didn't know until I read the book why it was called Electioneer. I thought it had something to do with, you know, elections. There's also a stock farm uh, uh, road also that runs through campus right now. But uh, but Electioneer is famous for, not for racing per se, but for being like the most prolific sire of like championship uh, harness racing horses. Yeah, never raced a race, in fact. And so there's a lot of dispute about electioneers, like what kind of race he would have had, you know, if he would have been able to trot at all, was he the best trotter of all time? Right. Um, so like these were, these were conflicts of the time. Uh, and it's interesting how we still see the same sorts of debate about Silicon Valley technology or Palo Alto technology, right? right? This is way before Silicon Valley, but like, actually, is this real? Is this totally made up? Of electioneer someplace on campus, I think in front of the Red Barn, maybe. I think there's, I'm, actually, I'm pretty sure there's a statue of Electioneer. Anyway, I want to talk about a few other things. So one character who shows up throughout the book who uh, might be surprising to some people is um, Herbert Hoover. And, you know, Herbert Hoover, like, literally looms large over the Stanford campus in some ways because of Hoover Tower, which is a landmark a piece of um, uh, Stanford campus architecture. Uh, talk for a minute or two about the role that Herbert Hoover plays, both in the origins of or the, in the Stanford story, but then also more largely in the in the Palo Alto and Silicon Valley story. Man, talk for a minute or two about Herbert and, uh, Hoover is the hardest is, thing well, in the world for me. Have, I have some, we'll give, let's say two or three at least. Well, it's three. it's so funny because I, I, like I did not set out to write uh, that kind of history, right? I was going to write a history where like, this is going to be about the dead president, white guys. This is going to be a history of the people. And then I run into Herbert Hoover and I just can't stop. And I just end up writing dozens of pages about Herbert yeah. Hoover. And my editor, I think at one point, is be like, you got to stop with this Herbert Hoover stuff. And I was like, I can't, can't stop. He really ends up being in my telling, I think like the most, one of the most, if not the most important American of the 20th century. Uh, and it helps for my story that he's a member of the first class at Stanford University. Mm. Uh, and so he, in my, in my mind, in my conception, really becomes Leland Stanford Jr., right? He's the orphan who comes in to fill in for the dead child and 
because he is an orphan of the West at the time. And he really achieves everything that could have been planned for Leland Stanford Jr. He becomes immediately becomes a world-class mining engineer, tours the, the world, bringing Stanford science uh, to every continent. He's in the American West. He's in Peru. He's in South Africa. He's in Myanmar. He's in Russia. He's in China. He's in Western Australia. And he ends up as a mining financier in Europe uh, when World War I kicks off. He plays a very important role as an American in Europe during World War I, running the, the food program for Belgium, in addition to funneling Americans out of the continent. And then he comes back to America where he expects to be made president by either party. He says in 1920, I'll, I'll run for whichever party will make me president. That doesn't go over particularly well, uh, but he come, becomes commerce secretary for two terms and then president for one term. And during what I really think of as three terms in the presidency, because at commerce, he does such important work in terms of setting the stage for the American 20th century. Um, yeah, I, I, again, the story keeps going. It's hard because it, our story often ends with uh, his defeat by Roosevelt. And the story that I tell is that in the post-war period, Hoover comes back, that Hoover outlasts Roosevelt, not just like literally in terms of the years that he's alive, because he lives into the 60s, which is incredible, uh, but that he comes back in and plays a major role in setting up the post-war uh, state of play, the world, uh, the geopolitics of the post-World War II era, and that his like anti-communism becomes foundational to the American strategy in the, the Cold War era. Obviously, people in Palo Alto know the Hoover Institution, which, like you said, literally looms over the campus. Um, incredibly important place. This is the back room where Reagan is chosen to be president. This is a back room where George W. Bush is chosen to be president. Uh, like so much of conservative politics comes out of Hoover and Hooverism. And again, like people don't know this. Uh, it really came up to me during the, the Silicon Valley bank uh, fiasco when some of these Silicon Valley guys were really struggling to describe their own politics because people were saying, oh, I thought you were a libertarian. How can you be a libertarian? Now you're asking for a bank bailout. And they're all saying, well, I'm not exactly a libertarian. I would never would have really put Macedo as a libertarian. The government needs to do like co important coordinating work. Um, and it's because they're Hooverites, they're associationists, and they don't know that history. So they don't know right. what their own politics are, uh, but they should read this book and find out. <laughs> so, uh, so that touched on a few things I want to um, ask you about. One is, um, you know, there's a perception of California's politics that California politics is uh, true blue. You know, we have a we have democratic a democratic governor and two democratic senators and like forty two. Uh, I think the the, del the the congressional delegation is like forty two to ten or something like that. Democratic leaning. Um, and, and yet, um, there is this other strain of California politics that runs the other direction. And you see it in, uh, you know, you mentioned Reagan, um, the, you know, the Hoover Institution, which became the home of like George Schultz and like a whole other series of Republican, um, kind of a Republican brain trust. And, and, and I wonder if that's how, how that plays out in this sort of history of Palo Alto. Like if you think about 
like are we all sort of misreading sort of the politics of 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 Palo Alto and Silicon Valley? I mean, there are some recent examples, right, of like Peter Thiel and Larry Ellison and like you know the Palantir story, all the stuff that runs the other direction. But it does feel like the politics of the valley is much more complicated than people might think at first blush. Definitely. And one of my goals with this story was to try and tell Palo Alto history, California history, not from the perspective of local history or even national history, but from the perspective of world history. And if you're looking at the 20th century from the perspective of world history, the like red versus blue stuff doesn't matter nearly as much, right? Like the if you're looking at the Cold War as the most important part of history, uh, whether there's a Republican or Democrat president in the United States is not the determinative factor for American policies throughout the world, right? These are impersonal structures that underlay the electoral system. Right. And obviously, I'm a Marxist. Uh, people have read about the book. They know that I'm a Marxist. And so that's the perspective with which I'm telling this history, mm -hmm. which is a history of class conflict. And uh, class analysis is not going to focus on the sort of red-blue division. Um, and so if you look at the, the politics of California and the history of class conflict in California, you get a different history. Um, and that's the history that I'm trying to sell. It's not that it's not conflicted or that they're all secretly conservative the whole time or whatever, right. um, but that the, the history isn't one of like well-meaning liberals trying their best and not necessarily succeeding. You know, there's a little bit of that in there, but there's a lot more of the other stuff. And right. one place I think you can really see it is the George W. Bush era and going back to early, late 90s, early 2000s writing about tech politics, mm -hmm. because you think of, especially around the 2000 election, you think of tech as very Al Gore, right? Al Gore stands for the Atari Democrats. Uh, they're right there. Tech is very like liberal, late 90s. Um, but there's a substantial part, especially at the top ranks of executives who are all in for George W. Bush. They had their buttons that said B2K on them. And a lot of people who are still in the leadership of Silicon Valley were part of that group. Right. And one of the things they loved about George W. Bush and his proposal for running the country was his attorney general, John Ashcroft, which is, seems incongruous because he's right. mostly remembered for being a, like the Patriot Act, right-wing Christian, right. pro-Ten Commandments. But he was also very pro-tech, like back into the 80s pro-tech. And when he came in, the first thing he does, one of the first things he does is drop the antitrust suit against Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And that sets the stage for the internet that we know and the tech industry that we know is the determination by the Bush era Justice Department that we're not going to pursue antitrust. We're going to work with these natural monopolies, naturally oligopolistic sector to give us access to a bunch of information that we wouldn't otherwise be able to get. And so we'll let them make whatever deal they want with their users because we'll, it allows us to buy that information from them. Right. And that's where you see the conflict over TikTok right now is that if you let social media companies harvest all these data and you turn them into basically spy companies, <laughs> then China can make one and have their own spy company. And, and, right. uh, some people, some critics have pointed this out that like the issue isn't China owning a social media company. 
or Chinese people owning a social media company, but the fact that all these social media companies have access to um, data that the government would otherwise need warrants for. Right. Um, so I want to so that I want to touch on a few. We we we're running a little over, and I would I'm going to let this go in a few more minutes and uh, touch on a few current. Your uh, topics that I'd like to get your opinion on. Some of which have happened since the book. So you alluded to oh, yeah. the Silicon Valley Bank, which is like fresh news. That's only a few weeks uh, that's that happened. Now, in I would note that in the book, you spend a lot of time on on the role of banking, in particular Bank of Bank of America, which some people might not know was once called the Bank of Italy. Um, uh, and, and I wonder, in that context, how you feel about what you've been seeing the last few weeks with the rescue of Silicon Valley Bank and the role that that bank plays or played in the infrastructure of Silicon Valley, which I, I think one of the biggest takeaways from, to me, at least from the last few weeks was, it was so integrated into the Valley infrastructure, uh, much more than probably the average person understood. And I, I'm curious about your take on what happened and also the fact that it was rescued or at least the, 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 the depositors were rescued. Once again, people, the, these uh, Silicon Valley capitalists should really read this book. They could have saved themselves uh, a lot of grief. So AP Giannini, the founder of Bank of Italy, um, was noted for his tactic of uh, escaping bank runs. And the way that you did that is you set up a table on the wharf and you stack a bunch of gold on it. And you say, <laughs> you want your money? Come get it. We got plenty. Uh, and people respond to that by depositing more money into the bank in the face right. of a bank run. Right. And so if they had, if they had known that history, maybe if they had, I, I was surprised not to see Silicon Valley leaders, the associational leaders of Silicon Valley come together and start tweeting pictures of, you know, me, Avengers memes of them going to rescue Silicon Valley right. bank. All right. Like get Reddit to rescue Silicon Valley bank. Um, and that's what I think the capitalists of 100 years ago would have tried to do instead, is that I think that the finance layer played a stronger coordinating role um, in stabilizing capital in California 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that's partly because the, the banks understood that they were investing in real long-term growth. Right. And so Bank of America, when they were investing in the agricultural cartels, when they were investing in Disney and the future of the entertainment industry, when they were investing in California land at the beginning of the 20th century, like right. they knew they had something good, right? Like they were right. willing to put their money where their mouth is and uh, put up their, their future right. in these investments. And now it seems like finance is struggling to play that coordinating role. And I think that's partly because they're not as sure about the future that they're investing in. Right. And that so much of the profits now are coming from financial and promotional profits that like the bank is the thing now. The bank is not the stabilizing factor. Now the bank is destabilizing. Right. And right. so you have people who are no longer willing to leave their money in the bank, right? No one don't want to stack their cash up. And I think Peter Thiel is a, interesting example of someone who uh, looks like he could take some credit for generating this bank run, right? Um, yeah, there's and, a lot of debate about like the role of, of venture capitalists like Peter and others who basically told their, um, their portfolio companies, get your money out of the bank. It's not safe. 
Um, well, and that's what happens when you think everything is speculative, right? And so when you say, oh, this bank has hundreds of millions of dollars in unrealized losses on its long-term bond portfolio. And it's like, yeah, but it's a long-term bond portfolio. You just hold on to them and then they pay out. Like you don't have to realize those losses. Right. Well, no one's going to make you do that right. unless they all take your money right now. Right. And so right. that's what they do. And it's because they see and they're, you know, they only see these opportunities and they only see sort of short-term ways to to speculate and move to make money as opposed right. to the long-term associational structures that they have to build up for actual growth. And they might not be wrong to do that, right? They might be looking at the world and saying, there's not uh, something good we can all really like invest our future in. You got to just pull out your money where you can and make whatever like short-term speculative bets you can and, right. and make money that way. Uh, but how much room does that leave for that kind of behavior? Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, um, just one or two last things I, um, I want to touch on. Um, one is the, one of the other like sort of enormous stories of the moment, right. Is, um, is this focus on artificial intelligence and, um, <laughs> so, so, so that's fake. Yeah, <laughs> you touched on it a little bit in the book, but like, talk a little bit about what what your what is your. I mean, you've sort of uh, you you begged the question. What what your take is about AI and the role that it is likely to um, to take in in the valley? It's there. The, the valley is always looking for the next great thing, right? It was crypto mm -hmm. or the metaverse or like three D printing or. You know, I don't know, like there's been like, a, I don't know. They've successfully like, done things in the past. You know, you don't yeah. have to just list failures. Right. Like there's a lot <laughs> of successes, you know, like there's a few decent sized companies. Out there. Uh, the PCs worked out okay. But, but, um, but, but, but do you think it's, is it just another bubble or do you think there's something legitimately world changing or is it just dangerous? Like, how do you think about AI? Uh, I don't call it AI, first of all. I, you know, these are large language model softwares. Yes. And if you think of it, if you call it all software, right? Like that's what it is. It's it's uh, programming. Uh, it's not it's not magic. They haven't spun straw into gold. And I think it's very funny that they seem to have convinced the public and the market that they can spin straw into gold. And now right. Sam Altman has to like stick that smile on his face permanently. <laughs> and look at the market like, yeah, I'm reinventing the world. Meanwhile, if you look at Sam Altman's history, right, what do you see? He dropped out of Stanford as a sophomore to start Looped, the famous social media company uh, Looped that got squashed by Forceware. Right. Um, then he goes to, to Y Combinator. What's his big success that he's known at Y Combinator for is Stripe. What's Stripe doing now is uh, running to the market because it's actually never made a dollar, right. but it has made reputations. And right. so when I look at both the history of the players involved and the history of this kind of technology, never mind like the crypto stuff we just got finished doing, never mind the like WeWork and Theranos stuff we got finished doing before right. that. I mean, this could not look more fake to me. And when I see a company like Coca-Cola being like, we're teaming up with OpenAI, are like, to do what? Like, and it, it's the, it sounds exactly the same as all well, the crypto AI, things but... that we saw. <laughs> I'm, yeah, kind of imagining what Coca-Cola, well, there was the same set of players, by the way, also like, uh, made a whole bunch of announcements about moving into the metaverse, right? So you can have not just intelligent uh, Diet Coke, but also um, 
a virtual Diet Coke. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, sure. We're it's teaming up with the metaverse. Life. Now you can drink a cola in the metaverse, like <laughs> killing me. Oh my gosh. I wish we had another hour to keep going. Um, this has been so much fun. Uh, I thank you. The book is um, a fantastic read. Um, yeah, see, like I've got one right here. Um, nice. Um, it's, uh, it, I, I'd recommend it. I'll have to tell you, I listened to the Audible book version uh, so like, I feel like I was listening to a different version of you. It's, it's actually fun uh, uh, to get to meet you in, in, in person. Thank well, that you. wasn't me. That was my, my good friend, Patrick Harrison. He, so I he know. did, I, he's yeah. got a much better voice than I do. So I'm, he does, I'm a little disappointed. He does a really but... good job. Uh, but Malcolm, thank you for doing this. I hope we get to, uh, to talk again. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. I'm sure, unless there's uh, no Silicon Valley money news worth reporting in the future. So. I, I hope that there is, because that is what I've been doing for my whole life. Um, <laughs> A growth so industry. Thank you for doing that. Um, thanks to everyone uh, for joining us for this interview with Malcolm. Uh, please join us again tomorrow. Uh, Market Watch uh, uh, will be speaking with Kim Wallace, who's a former Obama Treasury official on the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, which we just talked about, and the issues around the rising federal borrowing limits. Thanks to everyone for being with us. Please join us again uh, tomorrow and for the next uh, uh, Tech Trader and Barron's Live in two weeks. Thanks very much. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.